I copied that directly from Mike's description. So is it possible that I can blame Mike for this? <laughs> this is very important. This possible, is very important. If not probable. No, Mike spelled it right. <laughs> Welcome to Innovation Matters. It's the only podcast about sustainable innovation, which is the thing that oil and gas companies do every day. I'm joined, as always, by my hosts, uh, Mike. Hey, all. How's it going? And Kartik. Hey, what's up? What's up is that in recent news, the CEO of Saudi Aramco, noted oil and gas company, uh, has joined the board of BlackRock, noted proponent of finance ESG. Uh, Saudi Ramco, I think last year, or maybe two years ago, their CEO, uh, Nasser, they com- when they committed to essentially achieving net zero, which they did, um, they committed to achieving net zero in 2050 for all their operations. And which notably doesn't include the oil that they drill out of the ground, which is significant as the the world's largest oil and gas company. And the CEO had this to say, which is basically, he was like, it is the responsibility of governments, stakeholders, uh, corporations, and the energy sector to reduce emissions. Basically, like, it's everyone else's responsibility to decarbonize. We're just going to keep pumping oil. And if we don't emit any carbon while that oil is getting pumped, then everything else is everyone else's problem. And now this guy is on the board of BlackRock, the uh, the world's largest, one of the world's largest private funds. And, you know, Larry Fink has been a very notable and very high profile proponent of, of ESG. Right. And he's he's gotten flack for that, which I think is part of the, the reason for the move. He's trying this is, this is also just trying to show like, you know, we still care about oil and gas companies. Yeah, I think Matt Levine made this point, but no one who is upset with him about the ESG stuff that he has been doing is going to look at, you know, Saudi Aramco CEO being on the board and be like, yeah, actually, everything's cool now. They're still going to hate Larry Fink. <laughs> Except that now everyone else hates him too. I mean, I don't know. This is just another, for me, another check in the column of finance ESG is fake and totally worthless. But <laughs> well, well there, and there was also the other thing that got me thinking about this too is there's there was another even even more uh, sort of egregious story about finance ESG being fake, which is you know through. A clever little bit of financial engineering, mm. creating some of these like special purpose vehicles or holding companies that were actually basically just funding the Aramco oil pipelines company. Um, but they managed to get the funding vehicles themselves, you know, with to get a very high ESG score and get included in some of these ESG funds. So you could invest in this, yeah, ESG thing, and you basically all of the money was going to to Saudi Aramco. The, the idea was they were they separated the company that held the rights or the, the licenses to, to use the pipelines or the leases that owned the pipelines. Basically, they had a company that was purely ownership of financial instruments, right, related to the yeah. pipelines. And then that company, that has a very low carbon footprint, actually, because it's just a, an office with some papers in a box. 
<laughs> and they were able to turn around and sell, I think, loans from that company as an ESG vehicle because the actual company itself had very low, uh, very low impact, which is, of course, you know, totally ridiculous because that money ultimately just ends up supporting the operations of Saudi Ramco. <laughs> yeah, so finance ESG is is pretty fake. Uh, we don't need to beat that horse maybe any any more than we already have. But listeners, if you have any questions, write in and we will explain to you why it's fake. Otherwise, <laughs> we will move on. <laughs> but you wanted but to talk was, about Greentown, right? Well, it was yeah, because this this did also come up a little bit closer to home in the the sustainable innovation world a few a few weeks ago where Saudi Aramco also became a partner at Greentown Labs, which is uh you know really I, you know, it's it's a technology incubator in 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 Cambridge, Massachusetts, focused on clean tech, climate tech, uh, innovations, which full disclosure, Lux is also a partner of, and it's an organization we think really think really highly of. There's a lot mm-hmm. of really interesting, innovative startup companies that are there. There's a lot of um, big innovative companies that are uh, that are other partners at at Greentown Labs there as well. But this became controversial because. Uh, when they when Aramco became a partner, people said, "Oh, this is greenwashing. This is just you know, laundering Aramco's reputation." And I thought that was a little unfair because, you know, ultimately Greentown it's a real innovation organization, right? It's not a it's not a PR thing like mm-hmm. put out a press release like we did some beach cleanup to fix plastic waste or something like that. They just they are beach really. Cleanup, bro. Just one more. <laughs> that's all. That's all we need. Yeah, but they're here. They're they're doing and supporting real innovations, and I think and and really innovative startups. And you know, I'm sure there's some reputational benefit to Aramco from joining this, but it it's not a very PR focused thing. It's kind of hard for me to believe that that's really the main reason. Uh, that they're participating in in, in Greentown Labs. Uh, I, I think the reason that, you know, Greentown does have some language in there, you know, when they've discussed this as saying that we, you know, we only choose to work with organizations that have a credible net zero path. And as you pointed out, credible net zero commitments. And, and as you pointed out, Aramco <laughs> does have a net zero commitment, but it's really only scope one or, or scope one and two. It doesn't affect, you know, address the oil emissions, which is, of course, the emissions from the actual use of the oil they're pulling out, which, of course, is by far the hardest and Im- the, the biggest impact they have. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, Greentown did put itself in a little bit in the position of, of making it look like by accepting Aramco's money and, and participation, basically, that they it made it look like they were endorsing their um, their their climate plans. You know, but overall, I think it, it's interesting, like, what is the role of oil and gas companies in, in the energy transition? Because certainly, you, you know, you see some of these, especially some like BP and Shell, that they're really investing a lot in solar and wind and distribution and charging stations and all this, all this sort of stuff. And there's definitely a case to be made where these, you know, one is, as we've, we've pointed out in some of the, the Lux work, oil and gas companies do need a plan for the energy transition and shifting more into owning renewables and things like that um, is, is, is one 
uh, viable strategy, one potential strategy anyway that they can have, which might be might work for many of these companies. Um, and you know these companies do have they're going to be throwing off a lot of cash and, and profits from their existing operations for sort of the foreseeable future. They do have experience doing these sort of large projects. It is easy to imagine a a, a viable role for for some of these companies in in participating in the energy transition. Yeah, I, th- I think you hit on an important point, which is that they have a lot of money, and we do need that money. And they also have expertise. I think the expertise is really an important element, especially when it comes to certain kinds of technologies where drilling is maybe a necessity. But I just think in general, if you look at the capacity to build large-scale infrastructure, it really has shifted into private hands over the last you know, 100 years or so since... Some of the big works projects in America, as an example, you know, even since like the Marshall Plan, post World War II, now most of that capacity is is not in the hands of state actors. It's really in in private actors, and some of the biggest private actors who have that capacity are oil and gas companies. But I, I don't necessarily think that we need to continue to maintain the ownership structure or the general sort of like we were talking about this a little bit before the recording started, but. The energy transition, we want to complete that as quickly as possible, but we don't necessarily have to have an organization you know, named ExxonMobil or Saudi Aramco be part of that or be part of that in the future. Like, It's not necessarily a lock that they're just going to go from making oil to making electrons, and that's just the future. Because these organizations have long histories. You can argue that they've done a lot of damage via these emissions or via plenty of their other practices. It's not obvious that they as organizations or their shareholders as as a group of people need to continue to benefit from the transition forever. Um, but I, I do think we need their money. <laughs> that is obvious to me. Yeah. I mean, and from, from an overall sort of goals and, and, you know, saving the species and climate justice and all that, it doesn't, it doesn't matter per se, you know, if an organization named ExxonMobil uh, continues to, to exist or, you know, whether or not current shareholders of ExxonMobil or, or Ramco or whomever get, get, get screwed over. But I think it, it does matter from a climate justice standpoint. Well, it matters for, <laughs> it matters for some people, but as you know, it, it's what happens with them is not per se a, 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 a goal as far as, or an objective as far as helping us to, you know, keep warming to one and a half degrees centigrade or whatever. And I think, yeah, you have to, you have to, 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 to think about what's going to help make that transition happen the most effectively. And to the, you know, I don't think, you know, those companies are going to be really, you know, you don't necessarily have to go out of your way to be solicitous of trying to keep those, those companies around and, and, and involved, but to the extent that they can be, I think like that may just be the shortest and, and most effective uh, path if, you know, the mm. government regulations and financial structures and all of that can set up the incentives for these for these companies to to focus more of their business and and helping to grow renewable energy that that could be helpful i just you know i wouldn't i wouldn't count on that as being like the main thing that's going to save us but but it'll, it'll be part of the it'll be part of the move i mean oil and gas is not going to go away from the energy transition even at net zero is it i mean it's not it's not going to so happen that we're going to have zero oil production ever, even in a net zero scenario. I'm sure there will be demand for oil in different sectors. So unfortunately, we're never going to run away from oil, right? 
Um, I mean, if you look at all the summer sports that's been happening, you see incidents of just oil and just top oil. I think they're the ones who just keep, you know, interrupting sports events coming in. Um, so we are not going to stop oil, right? It's still going to be there. Um, I know Aramco is doing a lot of sustainability initiatives in Formula One, which is a sport I fondly follow. So, uh, you know, with E10 <laughs> in terms fuels. Of things and... we need to just stop doing. I think Formula One, <laughs> Formula One is another one. Well, at Aramco, like part of their strategy is, and I think this is kind of interesting too, is that they, I mean, basically from just a business strategy standpoint, their goal is to be the last oil company standing because they have Mm -hmm. basically the cheapest to produce oil. And they would argue from a sustainability standpoint, they have the lowest carbon to produce oil. So they they do actually have the most sustainable oil. This is (laughs) sort of of undeniable. Which which is actually true. So yeah, to the extent that we are going to use some oil and for for plastics or for various you know uh, more niche uses, even even after the energy transition, it probably does make sense for it to be Saudi oil. Kartik, how do you think these companies should be involved? Though should they be funding the startups? I mean, should they be? Do- how you know? I, I think the the issue right is that you run the risk of perpetuating or benefiting the people who have substantially contributed to climate change so how would you sort of square that circle i mean there are multiple options right uh, one of our esteemed colleagues runil wrote a great report uh, for lux clients who are listening to this podcast to have a look at um, on what are the strategies for oil and gas companies to pivot um, as they transition to net zero um, one of them is to be a utility for example which is where you know you make electrons you own solar and wind assets um I think the utility space is not the way to go. I think it's already way too crowded with too many people. Uh, I remember Fall, which was also a subject in our previous podcast uh, episode uh, for different reasons. Uh, they decided to give out PlayStations so that they could get customers to subscribe to their utilities program. So, you know, essentially they're going to supply, you know, electricity to these guys. And, and if you subscribe or become a customer, you get like a PlayStation or something. So I, I really don't, I mean, that didn't get them anywhere even though you know playstation suffered supply chain issues which is also another topic for another day um, maybe Saudi so we should just give out playstations that'll be a more effective greenwashing than, than working <laughs> with town labs or being part of formula one uh but yes yeah. um so i think the best possible way for them would be maybe mike can you know share his thoughts as well it would be to sort of become a you know pseudo chemicals company or be in that upstream side of you know producing chemicals so you know oils and then you use renewable electricity that they purchase to you know maybe produce other sustainable fuels or as feedstock uh, i'm not the chemicals expert but mike yeah i mean i think for a company like aramco chemicals is definitely going to be and they've invested a lot in, in crude chemicals as well so that that uh, which you know is a technology that can help to convert a much larger percentage of a given barrel of oil into chemicals instead of into fuels. And that's, that's definitely, I, th- I think going to continue to be a big uh, part of their future also. But uh, w- one of the other things that. that yeah. On to our next segment. Yeah. 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 That oil and gas companies can do, right. Is get into you know, that very directly repurposes their, some of their, their expertise is is getting into geothermal energy, and we had some some interesting news uh, on that this week with uh, some test results from Fervo Energy, a company that has a, a a novel approach to geothermal that they think can can make it a lot more efficient and, and accessible. So, 
Karthik, you're really the the expert in this area. So I was, was curious to get your, your thoughts on it. Yeah, so to give some context to our listeners as well, uh, Furbo essentially completed what they call a groundbreaking test. I mean, they did drill the ground, so it's literally groundbreaking. Uh, <laughs> so uh, yeah, they uh, completed a 30-day test, which is claimed to be an industry standard. So any new geothermal well that is, uh, you know, to be, uh, let's say, is slotted or is allotted to produce electricity needs to go through this 30-day test where they essentially assess the the entire geothermal well for instabilities. Now, these instabilities could be reverse flows or reductions in pressure during flow, any losses in temperature. So is the entire system working fine and, and is it stable? Um, and so they completed this 30-day test. Uh, they claim this is the first time that a, a horizontal well pair as wide as they have constructed has been um, implemented in a geothermal well. So uh, off the top of my head, I think the number is about 3,900 feet. Um, And they, I think, also produced heat at about 191 degrees Celsius. Uh, They said that they have also implemented a U.S. Department of Energy um, seismic activity uh, mitigation plan or, or, or some sort of standard there as well. And they essentially you know, have faced no issues with inducing seismic activity. Is this a big deal? Like, for someone who knows basically nothing about geothermal, not that there'd be anyone like this, like that on this podcast. Yeah, yeah. Is so, this a big deal? So personally, I would say no. Um, so to, again, give some context to listeners, uh, an enhanced geothermal system essentially is a man-made geothermal system. So let us say you have geothermal resources uh, in a particular location, but you cannot access them because... Either the rock's not too hot at the at the depth you're interested in, or it's just not permeable enough, so you can't access it directly. So you end up uh, fracturing this rock by injecting, you know, pressurized water. So you you know let the cracks propagate, let them go deeper, and then you access the heat that you need, and then you extract them out from another well um, on the other side. Now this is something that's already been demonstrated before. Uh, in closed loop systems, for example, Ever Technologies is another company from the United States that's done this. I know that Green Fire Energy is another company that's looked into enhanced geothermal systems with supercritical carbon dioxide cycles as well. So calling this the first time ever for me seems a bit too much because it's been done before. Maybe the parameters of the test were different. So technically, it was the first time such a test was conducted. But at the end of the day, if you have to implement an enhanced geothermal system, it comes down to two things. Uh, the one, the first one is costs, which is completely under the control of the company. The second one is seismic activity, which they have to be really conservative about because you know you don't want to be the company to induce an earthquake that becomes part of the news. And then geothermal, which is already pre- pretty expensive to deploy, uh, already relies on a lot of government support to sort of get this not-in-my-backyard mindset, sort of what we see in nuclear uh, mm-hmm. kick in and then people go we don't want geothermal anymore so uh but costs cost, will be the differentiator so the costs are the differentiator and is that a place where the oil and gas companies can actually make a big difference I mean, they are the the world leaders in drilling holes in the ground right exactly i think it's more of the upstream geothermal side where oil and gas companies can actually leverage their expertise so in exploration, determining the best sites, and then mm. using their off-the-shelf drilling technologies to access those sites. Uh, I think it would be a great way for them to pivot as well. Uh, I know that a few oil and co- gas companies have talked about injecting brine back into the ground. 
which can again be reused. So, uh, yeah, I mean, essentially the elevator pitch for, for Fervo, right, is we're going to take the techniques that have been developed for to, to frack for natural gas and we're going to apply those to geothermal, right? It's maybe that's a bit of an oversimplification, but that that's kind of the, the gist of the idea. Um, and I think, you know, as far as it goes, it, it seems like that makes sense, even if from Karthik, what you're saying, it's, it's not quite as, as novel maybe as it's, uh, or there's some other people that are doing similar things at, at the least. Um, I think it's just more a, a question. And I think obviously it's something that could fit well for oil and gas companies. To me, it's just more of a question of it kind of given the resources, given the location, given the, 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 the costs and the geology, right? How, how much can this really scale, even in an optimistic scenario? What what sort of portion of our energy could could realistically come from geothermal, even in a country like, say, the U.S., which I think is relatively relatively favorable for it? We'll leave it there. We have a really fantastic interview coming up in the second section. We've got Freya Burton. She's the chief sustainability officer from Lanzatech. Lanzatech is another one of these companies that's tackling hard to abate sectors. Steel, I think in particular, but ultimately, if you are an oil and gas company, I think you've got to be looking at companies like Lanzatech as part of the transition because they're the ones really ultimately creating the new carbon feedstocks for the future. So let's go to our interview. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening to all our listeners. Uh, this is the Innovation Matters podcast from Lux Research. I am Karthik Subramanian, and I am joined today by Mike Holman, who is also from Lux Research, and Freya Burton from Lanzatech. Um, good afternoon to everyone. I guess you're joining from the UK, right, Freya? I am, yes. Uh, afternoon for me, and uh, I think early uh, very, morning for Mike. Yeah. <laughs> very early morning for Mike, right? Not too early. But uh, yes, thanks. Thanks for joining us, Freya. Uh, and you, so you're the uh, the the chief uh, sustainability officer at uh, at Lands Attack, which I, as I think a lot of our listeners probably already know is the uh, leading company in carbon utilization. It's producing ethanol and other downstream products from uh, carbon containing waste gases using a synthetic biology type of process, and it's. You know, been I think one of the most successful companies in that space on uh, already operating I think it's five commercial scale facilities globally so um, you know great to, to get your perspective on on sustainable innovation and uh, and what's uh, what's been successful for Lanzatech so thanks thanks for joining us no it's great to be here thanks thanks for having me yeah. and to that point you do you joined Lanzatech back in, in 2007 so you've You've seen a, a lot of this this journey from you know the very earliest stages to the you know kind of early commercial scale that you're that you're at now. Um, and from what you've seen, what do you think have been the factors that have been most uh, most critical to uh, to your success there? So you know it, it's interesting because I I've been on this journey for such a long time and and I always joke that you know, Lanzatech's no longer a startup. We're kind of a middle-aged startup, but then I worry how that reflects on me. But <laughs> but, um, but it's been a really interesting journey because, you know, back in the day it was, um, you know, we were making um, ethanol for, for road transport primarily. And, and Lanzatech was born, um, you know, out of a desire to make fuels that did not impact land, food, um, used a feedstock that was readily available, point sourced, low cost, and, and so on. But it was at a time when 
you know, it was the the clean tech, you know, 1.0. It was not a great time, you know. And if you said you were making biofuels at the time, people didn't want to be near you. So it was it was a little tricky, um, you know, to, to get going with that. And, and then also to say, well, we're making it out of pollution. And <laughs> people would kind of laugh you out of the room. Um, so we, you know, we started out, you know, when I joined, there were like four of us, I'm a biologist, and I was in the lab. And and we were having to make us, you know, make this concept of carbon utilization heard, you know, people were not talking about it. And this industry was really just super nascent. And it's kind of, it's growing up now. and, And we have a lot more, you know, language around carbon, a lot more visibility about CCU, CCUS. But at the time, nobody knew what we were doing. And quite frankly, they thought we were crazy. Um, so it was a pretty tough time to try and seek funding to, to grow a company and, and so on. And, and, and as you know, we, you know, we started life in New Zealand, which was a fantastic place to start the mm. company. Um, and, and we were so lucky that we had really you know, insightful investors, and I should say very patient investors, who, who jumped on board, you know, as kind of carbon champions, who who saw the potential for carbon utilization all those years ago. And and then, you know, really what happened was we, we looked globally. So we didn't say we're going to make one product in one location with one feedstock. We said, let's let's go to where the carbon is. We went to China in 2009. We, we got strategic investors. Yeah, we, we, we spread out. It was a, a big part of our growth. And that's still, I guess, you've got four of your largest, I think, exist, currently running facilities are in China, right? That's right. We have three three operating and one about to start up um, in China. Um, and, and, you know, at the time, many years ago, people were like, why are you going to China? Yeah. And, and we said, well, look, they, they make a lot of steel. They have, you know, a lot of emissions that we can use. And they get things done pretty quickly. You know, when they when they have a target and we know they have targets, you know, they they will achieve those targets. So we started we broke ground in um, 2015, our plant in China, um, and now we have three operating facilities. So, you know, in, in a relatively short space of time for first of a kind technology to build in the first one started in 2018. And then the next two post-COVID. I mean, it was incredible at the, the speed of what, what you can get done. Yeah, it's 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 pretty remarkable. And I was, I was curious, I mean, as I actually went back and we, we profiled Lanza Tech for the first time here at Lux back in, in 2011. And so I was going back and looking at some of the old, the old profiles. Uh, um, and it's interesting, it hasn't, uh, you know, there's probably been more i think consistency in the the strategy and approach and 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 mission than than you sometimes see with uh with companies that have you know startups that have survived for this long but i'm sure there have been some big changes what do you think is like the biggest the biggest pivot that 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 lanzatech has has made to kind of to make you successful along the way yeah i mean that's a good question you know we we started out thinking about fuels you know, but, mm-hmm. but we quickly realized, you know, you need carbon in so many places and that chemicals was a natural evolution for us. And we never we yeah. never wanted to go for like niche chemicals, you know, just that and, and pivot away from volumes of, of fuels. Yeah, we really sure. wanted to focus on hard to abate sectors. So we 
we looked at aviation fuel. So, you know, 2010, Jennifer Holmgren joined us as our CEO. And and really from that point on, and she's affectionately known as the sort of godmother of SAF, sustainable aviation fuel, and (laughs) because she really worked on a lot of those, you know, original technologies for the development of SAF. And she naturally saw the the ability of applying our process to take waste-based feedstocks as a as a as quite frankly a very sensible option to to build up those supplies of sustainable aviation fuel we need and so that was a big turning point um, going into the sustainable aviation fuels market uh, the chemical side kind of happened really organically you know once you're making ethanol for fuels you can use ethanol and ethanol derivatives for other things uh, and the beauty of of our system, you know, using biology is, you know, it can do a lot. Um, it's it's super flexible. Of course, I'm a biologist. I would say that. Um, but the the you know what we see is we have our what we call our microbe, and today it can make ethanol. But you could kind of remove the ethanol producing gene, and and that switches on a gene that makes another chemical that today might come from fossils. So that was a natural extension for us. So the chemical side and, and the aviation were, you know, really big moments um, in our in our sort of growth journey. And of course, with uh, aviation, now you have Lanzajet, which I would sort of say is a subsidiary, uh, subsidiary of Lanzatech. Well, so it's, uh, actually, it's an independent company. Um, and uh, we, but, you know, we spun it out, of course, at the best possible time to spin out an aviation fuel mm-hmm. company. 2020 so uh again people thought we were crazy um you know no no planes in the air at the time um but an absolute desire by airlines to find sources of fuel and so for us we had developed that that platform to make saf um over a 10-year period really um with the support from the u.s department of energy and and one of their national labs specific northwest national lab um, to develop this way of converting ethanol to jet fuel, but we didn't we didn't have all the expertise to take that to scale. So we had to spin out a whole new company, Lanza Jet, very imaginative, mm-hmm. um, to scale that up, and that's what they're doing today, which is pretty cool. Yeah, and it's interesting you also mentioned COVID because uh, so I am in the Netherlands. For all the listeners who don't know where I am stationed, uh, but India is my first home. Um, and Netherlands is sort of my second home and you mentioned COVID and it was really hard to go back home. Um, and of course, with sustainable aviation fuel, um, uh, the thing I see is that sustainable aviation fuel does not have the same energy density maybe as, you know, the conventional fuels that we use today, even though you get the bonus of no carbon emissions or, or reduced carbon emissions. Uh, my question to you would be, uh, what do you see in terms of distances and in terms of traveling with SAF and more so what do you think um, uh, an aircraft developer like Airbus whom you do have a partnership with have to do and and modify in in their aircrafts to incorporate SAF? Yeah so so Airbus and lands jet and uh, and (laughs) I know it it gets it gets confusing but but look all the the um, you know the big aircraft manufacturers Boeing Airbus they're all looking at you know, SAF is, is going to be part of the solution. And, and and quite honestly, there needs to be multiple solutions. You know, we need to look at hydrogen, we need to look at electric planes, uh, but, but largely SAF is going to play a really significant role um, because you can 
you can get the energy you need for long distance flight. Uh, you know, you're not going to get that from batteries. I mean, you can't even take yep. off the battery so big. So you need to have SAF. Um, and it's a drop in. And, and the key for all of this, for the energy transition is make it happen fast. And to make it happen fast, it has to drop into existing infrastructure. And, and so SAF will be a, a really big part of that, um, you know, that solution. Where are we at today? We are not anywhere close enough. Uh, you know, it's under 1% of what we need um, in the next sort of 10 years, or what, 23, yeah, about 10 years, um, which is pretty scary uh, when we think about what we need. Yeah. Uh, but the technology is there. Um, the feedstocks are there. Um, what's missing is the right market and the right legislative landscape uh, because these are first-of-a-kind technologies. They need financial support. You're comparing SAF to fossil, um, which has had you know, almost 100 years of baked-in incentives and, and getting down the cost curve. It's not a, a really fair comparison, but, but it is what it is. And so we need sort of frameworks in place to support um, supply of SAF. The US does a good job here with uh, the Inflation Reduction Act and, and the, the SAF Blenders Tax Credit. Yep. Um, Europe, the UK, they're a bit more stick versus carrot. So it doesn't make it as attractive a, 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 an environment for new technology developers. Yeah, that's one of the. I mean, maybe zooming out a little bit from from SAF, SAF, the um, you know the policy landscape. It's been, I think, one of the the biggest changes and stories that we've been following in sustainable innovation over the last couple of years. Things like the Inflation Reduction Act have really shifted the landscape for a lot of different um, a lot of different technologies and and, and markets. Um, and and obviously with 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 the SAF credit and things like that, that's that's impacted. Uh, Lanzajet and and, and Lanzatech as as well. Um, what do you see as how do you see that sustaining or evolving? What do you how do you expect the policy landscape to be to be changing, or how would you like it to change? Maybe to to continue to support the the sort of decarbonization over the, the years to come here. I mean, I think there's a number of, of factors. The first is getting those first plants built, and there needs to be some kind of price stability mechanism. Just because you know these are first of a kind plants, they're expensive. They need some help just to kind of get going. Uh, but once they, you know, they start getting down the cost curve, and you can get the volumes out, you're creating the market. You know, it it, it should be a kind of stage gate uh, price stability mechanism. We don't want to bake this in. Although in the fossil sector, they've had baked in things. <laughs> so again, it, it's tricky. Um, you know, I I think. You know, what we really need is, you know, my observation of policies today for new technologies that are trying to change the status quo, whether it's in chemicals, in SAF, in road transport, is it, these technologies have to jump through way more hoops than anybody else. And, you know, examples would be regulations around hydrogen and, and uh, hydrogen use in, in Europe for the what we call renewable fuels of non-biological origin, ones that are using CO2 and hydrogen, um, really complex rules that make it very difficult for new technologies to develop. We produce fuels that are called recycled carbon fuels because we are recycling carbon that would otherwise go into the atmosphere. It's an opt-in fuel in Europe, so we have to go cap in hand to every member state to say, will you, will you allow us to contribute? We have very complex 
methodology um, assessments to work out your life cycle of, of the fuel. So meanwhile, all these new technologies are, are sort of bending over backwards to be super transparent and show the reductions and the holistic benefits. And who, who keeps selling fuels and, and going? It's all the fossil industry. And, and so it, it kind of feels like legislation is um, kind of preventing us from meeting our targets on a global scale. Because as I said, 1%, less than 1% of SAF that we need is being made today. We need to ask ourselves why. It's not because there isn't feedstock. It's not because there isn't investment, you know, and it's not because there isn't technology. It's because of this very difficult framework for actually getting it built. Yeah. Well, I mean, the cost is still something, of a, it's still a factor also, right? There is, there... Um... Cost is absolutely a factor, but it, it's a factor because you don't have this you know, this bridging thing to get the first ones built. You could get the and, scale. And, and then you can go yeah. down the cost curve. So, you know, and, and you had the, you know, head of Boeing say it's never going to be cost competitive. Well, maybe not, but but you do need to start taking in the externalities of the fossil fuels that we're burning. You know, I mean, just look at the news today as there's climate related disasters everywhere. Floods from India, the West Coast, the East Coast, extreme heat in Europe. You kind of think, how much more can the earth tell us that we need to make a change? But nothing is really changing. I mean, there might be some more reports written which tell us, yeah, there's a problem instead of just getting it done. Yeah. Uh, coming back to SAF itself, uh, maybe uh, also tying in with the policy side. Uh, now that the IRA has come out, I expect similar policies to come out in other regions of the world. I know. Europe has already come up with its uh, RE Power EU fit for 55 and those sort of deals. Um, how do you see these policies impact the timeline for SAF or, or by when do you see SAF become a, a, like the norm in, you know, in aviation? Well, I mean, it comes down to all these lovely reports and policies and desires of governments. Um, we have targets for 2030. Um, we're not going to meet them you know, as a, as a globe, it, it is, you know, and, and I think I was talking with someone recently who was doing a calculation of how many plants need to be built over the next, it's like a thousand plants every year for the next 10 years, not just SAF, but in, you know, for the energy transit, it's just not possible. Why? And we need to ask ourselves why, because, you know, we're not letting the market decide. We're putting in all these incredibly complex rules because we're terrified of what happened in cleantech 1.0 essentially you know we we don't want to open pandora's box to a new technology because we don't know what will happen instead of saying let's just build stuff and assess and and you can have a a threshold you know or or an overall you know be very transparent with what you're making and 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 go from there i think the other issue is you know beyond saf looking at chemicals and and road all the certification bodies that exist. So every new technology and new product has to go and be certified to sell into a certain market. And you feel like it, we would just get along a lot quicker if we could all just say, this is what it's made from. This is the LCA. Do you want to buy it? Do you not want to buy it? Do you want to start making a dent on your you know, emissions? Um, it, it, it's, I think we're just adding layers of complexity now. Saying that, we work with third parties, we work with certification bodies, because that's what we have to do. But does it make it more complex? Yes, it does. And and so I worry that we will not get to where we need to be. 
um, and and we're we're doing a lot as as Lanzatech and Lanzajet, and and we're it's a close knit community of SAF producers. We all work quite closely together, um, and we're all trying. I mean, these are very committed people and companies, but it, it it's a very tough gig, <laughs> to be honest. Well, one of the things I mean, thanks, speaking about collaborations, right? One of the things that uh, the Lanzatech is done along the way is worked with a lot of large established companies, whether it's the companies whose emissions you're using or other equity partners, other um, development partners, um, you know, and that's what, you know, a lot of our clients at Lux are from the, these, these sort of large multinationals that are interested in working with, you know, emerging innovative companies like Lanzatech. Uh, what is it that you found makes for the most successful partnerships as, as you've grown? Yeah, I mean, we we are so lucky in in the partners that we're working with from, you know, some of the the largest companies in the world, the largest players in the steel and and energy sectors. And we're working with, you know, traditional energy companies as well. Um, Communication, you know, 100 percent, you know, we, we have to have these very open channels of communication. We're working on new technology. There needs to be a lot of transparency. Um, especially when we're working with big energy companies and, and, and also consumer brand companies, which we're working increasingly with today, producing um, materials for their, their things like textiles and, and um, consumables, because they, they need to not be accused of greenwashing. They need to be very transparent in what they're doing. Um, and, and we've been lucky that we've had companies that have really you know, taken a leap we used to joke, you know, nobody wants to be first with us. They all want to be first to be second. Um, and we've been lucky that we've had, you know, companies like Xiaogang and, and Indian Oil and, and ArcelorMittal who've all come forward and, and built plants um, with our technology, you know, as the first in their sector. Um, and at every stage, they've been super aligned on our values, you know, communicating, um, you know, asking each other the, the difficult questions to get these things built. Um, and, and that's been really important. And, and for us, as I said, you know, earlier, it's about a global reach. You, you need a lot of friends to, to make this happen. Uh, and we're lucky in that we've, we've gone, you know, across the globe and, and across sectors um, to find like-minded people and companies. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Maybe a bit of a wild card question to, to wrap up. One of the one of the things I noticed on your CV from uh, I'm assuming school days was the Cambridge Blind Wine Tasting Society. <laughs> I'm, not sure, I'm, not, I'm not sure if that has anything with you being to do with you being in the ethanol business and now. But, uh, <laughs> but do you have any any favorite regions or recommendations for the uh, Innovation Matters audience? Well, you know, I would be remiss if I didn't talk up New Zealand as the you know the birthplace uh, of Lanza yes. Tech and and obviously. You know, birthplace of gas fermentation, but obviously tremendous wines in New Zealand. So, you know, traditional fermentation um, and, <laughs> and, and the wines that, that are there. So I would say definitely checking out some of the fabulous wines in uh, in New Zealand, in particular Martinborough, um, some good Pinot Noirs there if you like that. Excellent. We'll, we'll check that out and we'll keep uh, keep following the progress at uh, at Lanza Tech. But uh, thanks so much, Freya, for for joining us and for the for the conversation here. And uh, and we'll we'll be in touch. And no, thanks, thanks to so thank you, thanks Freya. to all of you for uh, you. joining us on on Innovation Matters.
Innovation Matters is a production of Lux Research. For more, visit www.luxresearchinc.com.